0: Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our series in the Certainty of the Savior. This morning we'll be wrapping up chapter 23 and moving into chapter 24, Uh, Luke chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verse 50. Out of reverence and respect for God and His Word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Luke 24, 23, beginning in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, And looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask through the ministry of your word and spirit that you would cause our love for you to mature and grow and deepen. And that the reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would grip our hearts and move us towards lives that seek to bring honor In glory and praise to you, our King and the only head of the church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, COVID has interrupted so much of what we seem to have used to enjoy in normal life. It's interrupted even normal funeral procedures for many families. We used to gather together inside in order to weep and mourn together and to celebrate the lives of loved ones. But now we often will go from the the death of that individual almost directly to the cemetery, almost directly to the site of burial for a graveside service. It seems so different and, and so rushed. And yet Luke in his gospel account does something similar. He takes us from the death of Jesus directly to his burial site. And he does so for good reason. You see, the burial of Jesus Christ points to the reality of His incarnation. I don't know about you, but in almost all of the biographies that I've ever read, I don't recall the author taking time to spend around the burial site. I don't recall a paragraph describing the preparation of the body or a brief bio on the people who actually buried Him. I don't recall reading a book like that other than The four Gospels. They spend time specifically on the burial of Jesus. Think of the Apostle Paul. He said to the Corinthians, For I deliver to you first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised again according to the Scriptures. Think of the Apostles' Creed that we'll confess in just a few moments. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Why the emphasis on the burial of Christ's body? Because it reminds us of the reality of the incarnation. It reminds us that Jesus took on real human flesh. That he was fully God and fully man. It assures us that His sacrifice and His substitution on our behalf were legitimate. It assures us that the Jesus who died on the cross was not a mere apparition. That there was not some kind of last second substitute of His body under cover of darkness as Islam teaches. But that it was the same Christ who died on the cross and who was buried. As Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so there's an emphasis on the incarnation of Christ, the reality that it was the same Christ who offered himself as a lifeblood, as a sacrifice for our sins. But did you notice there's a little side road here I want to take just for a moment regarding Jesus' burial? It's not just the emphasis on his burial, but there's a side story on those who buried him. A brief story of compassion and of courage. As one writer put it, Jesus' body was removed from the rough cross by the hands of affection. There was a wealthy member of the council who disagreed with their decision to sacrifice Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Luke described him as a righteous man, a good man one who was actually seeking the kingdom of God. John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but one secretly because of the fear of man. John also tells us in his gospel account that somebody else joined him in preparing spices. It was Nicodemus, you remember him, who visited Jesus under cover of darkness. These two men are mentioned in the gospel accounts, but it was Joseph who went and approached Pilate requesting Jesus' body. You see, the Romans, for effect, would leave a corpse rotting on the cross for days so that everyone who walked by would be struck with the fear of the Roman government. But the Jewish law required those bodies to be taken down by sunset. And so Joseph went to Pilate. Mark tells us Joseph took courage. When he approached Pilate, but in addition to Joseph and Nicodemus, who are now going public with their trust in Christ, Luke also mentions by name several courageous women, women who were with Jesus in his death to the bitter end, women who were there at the gravesite, women who saw the burial of Jesus. In fact, it's this group only, this listed of being eyewitnesses. To both the, all the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Women of courage, women of compassion, commended by God Himself. Think of the courage it must have taken to go public with Jesus after His death. It could have cost these men their careers in the council. It cost the men and women financially as they prepared expensive myrrh and aloes. It cost them and could have cost them their very lives. But now Joseph and Nicodemus, along with these women, were no longer secret followers of Jesus, but making public their profession. What about you? What about me? Has the fear of man at times caused us to go underground in the office place, in the classroom, And other areas of the community? Has the fear of man caused us to be distant followers of Jesus? Or have you taken your stand by God's grace? At the foot of the cross with the resurrected, glorified Savior Himself. Phil Reichen rightly says it's one thing to praise God in the church. But it's something completely different to proclaim Him in the community. Oh, may God, along with these men and women, grant us by His Holy Spirit the courage, the boldness to take public stands for the person and work of our risen Savior and glorified Savior. May He, through the ministry of the Spirit, grant us grace to stand boldly for Him. But after resting on the day of the Sabbath, the women then went to the tomb to honor the body of Jesus with their spices, but the stone had been rolled away. They're confused, they're perplexed, and in their bewilderment, we also see that the resurrection of Christ was an unexpected display of the power and the glory and the grace of the living God. When the women came to the tomb, they expected to find a dead body. They expected to find a corpse But instead they found none. Rather they found two angelic beings who asked them the most profound question. Why? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Dead people don't, uh, living people don't inhabit tombs. And then the angels shocked them with this statement. He is not here, but has risen. As a university student, Josh McDowell was consumed with three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And as a university student, he, he ran into a group of Christians and faculty members who were lovers of Christ. And he described them as being disgustingly happy. He couldn't figure out what was going on with these people. And as he developed a friendship with them, he finally asked one of the young ladies, tell me, why are you so different from the other students and faculty on this campus? What changed your life? And Josh said, without hesitation and without embarrassment. She looked me straight in the eye, deadly serious, and uttered two words I never expected to hear in an intelligent conversation at a university campus. She said, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I snapped. I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. And immediately she shot back and said, I didn't say religion. I said, Jesus Christ. And then he said, she said something to me I'd never thought of before. I never knew. She said, Christianity is not a religion per se. Religion it's humans trying to work their way to God through good works. Christianity is God coming to, through huma, to humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then my new friends challenged me and I, something I, I couldn't believe. They wanted me to make a rigorous intellectual examination of the claims of Jesus Christ. That He is God's Son. He inhabited a human body and lived among real men and women that He died on the cross for our sins, that He was buried and was resurrected three days later, and that He is still alive and can change the lives of those who trust Him. Now, if you know Josh McDowell's story, that sent him on a relentless quest to disprove Christianity, and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, that quest landed him at the foot of the cross, And at the open mouth of that empty tomb. As a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. Josh McDowell has written many books dealing with the historicity of the resurrection. More than a carpenter. Evidence that demands a verdict. And then he got real creative in the the third title. More evidence that demands a verdict. If you're here this morning and struggle with the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. These books may be some help for you. But The evidence alone is is not what the Scriptures focus on. Not just the reality of the resurrection, but its meaning and significance. What are the implications of the resurrection? Of the literal, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul says if it didn't happen, if there is no literal, physical, supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ... Then we are to be pitied among all people. His preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. And our lives will end in utter vanity. He wrote, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people most pitied. However, he continued confidently. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what does that mean for you as a believer? What does that mean for us in 2020? First, if our faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, we have a new status. We have been united to the resurrected Christ by faith. We have a new status. We have a new identity. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, our old status lies in a tomb. A new status is ours through His resurrection. Because we've been united to Christ by faith. Second, we have a new standing before God. A right standing. A righteous standing before Him. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And Paul connects that to the resurrection. Listen to his words in Romans 4. This righteousness from God will be counted to those who believe in Him. Who raised Jesus from the dead. He was given over to death, delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. He was raised to make us right with God such that in our justification, all the righteousness God requires of us has been provided for us by grace through faith. In His Son. We have a new status. We have a new standing before God. Third, we have a new life in Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 6. Because we've been united to Christ. In His death, burial and resurrection. We now have power. To live a new life in Him. He wrote the church in Corinth. Therefore if anyone is in Christ. He's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold the new has come fourth we have a renewed hope not just for this life but the life to come Paul says in Corinthians that Jesus is our first fruits of resurrection do you know what that means that means because Jesus literally rose again from the dead others will follow that death will not have the last word for the Christian that as we do gather around that burial place And mourn the loss of loved ones. For those who are in Christ. We know that's not our final goodbye. There is resurrection. There is union and reunion. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we have a new status. A new standing. A new life. Renewed hope. And finally. Through the resurrection of Christ. We have the promise and security. Of a new heavens. And a new earth. We saw it just a few weeks ago. Jesus promised. To the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Same root word for garden. It takes us back to the garden. Where everything came unraveled because of sin. Where death and destruction and decay began to take hold of this fallen world. And Jesus drawing our minds back to paradise old. Was telling that thief on the cross. Paradise. Lost will be one day paradise regained. And so in Revelation 21, as we read of the hope of glory and where the believer is heading in the future one day, we read of the one who's seated on the throne. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. No more disease. No more decay. No more death. Paradise lost The glorious, resurrected, glorified Savior will be paradise regained. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's exclamation mark on all of redemptive history and should have profound effects on our lives. And so as the women in great sadness on this day approach a tomb that ended up being empty in all their confusion and perplexity, they were soon to discover what Sinclair Ferguson went on to say. What seemed to be the defeat was actually victory. And the resurrection morning was hell's gloomiest day. So let me ask you, are you living, am I living in the light of the resurrection of the Son of God? Are you reveling in your new status and identity as one who has been deeply loved by God? Are you reveling and rejoicing in your justification that, that God has not only removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, but actually clothed us with the righteousness of Christ and set His love upon us? Is your hope of glory... Tomorrow, filling your hearts and souls today with a sense of hope. Have you heard in your own soul the echo of God's exclamation mark of all a redemptive history? This is why Christians grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no. Hope. Why? Because as the angels have said, He is not what? Here. He is risen. But the women were still perplexed. They, they couldn't yet put it all together. And so the angels offer them a gentle rebuke with a particular word. In verse 6, they said, Remember? Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? You know, on several occasions throughout Luke's Gospel, we've seen Jesus telling them precisely what's going to happen, what's being fulfilled before their very eyes back in chapter 9. Jesus said to them plainly, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Don't you remember this? The angels asked these women. And then we're told they remembered Jesus' words. And returning from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to the rest. In this Lord's Day angelic encounter, we're also reminded that the word of Christ must be remembered, it must be believed, and it must be acted upon in faith. You see, when the women were challenged by the angels to remember, this was not simply a matter of intellectual data of intellectually remembering something or recollecting words and not forgetting the facts, it involved much more. The month of May is a big month in our family. In addition to it being the birthday of one of our children, it also includes Mother's Day, Becky's birthday, and our anniversary, going on 41. Now, suppose I remembered all those dates I circled them on the calendar. I put them in my phone. I set alerts for them. And I'm ready. I've got the dates down of those wonderful events marking the calendar for the month of May. But suppose when May rolls around, I didn't do a thing about it. I didn't buy flowers. I didn't prepare a meal. I didn't send cards. I would be rightly so in the doghouse for life. But, but, but I remembered the dates. I, I remembered the events, but not in the biblical believing sense. You see, in Mid- Middle Eastern culture, the idea of remembering was much more than just intellectual. It affected the affections and the actions of a person. It comes from the Hebrew word zakar. It's the kind of remembrance that does involve the mind, but embraces The affections and the actions of the one who truly remembered. It calls for true belief to be acted upon in faith. And so the women were challenged to remember Jesus' words in this way. If they truly remembered, they would not have been seeking the living among the dead. If they truly remembered they would not have approached that tomb downcast and in despair. If they had truly remembered, they would have approached the tomb in breathless wonder and joy-filled anticipation and expectation. And now upon this challenge, all of a sudden, they remembered something changed. And they went from that empty tomb and the first thing they did As they told the other disciples what had taken place. But there they found others who had not remembered. You see, it wasn't just Thomas who doubted. All of them. In fact, we're told in this passage when the women told the disciples their words, it sounded like an idle tale and they did not believe. They're not fully convinced. Peter takes off, he looks in the tomb and he comes back in amazement, but I still don't think it was all put together yet for him. You know, I wonder how often we are among those who have heard Jesus' words again and again and again. All his promises that are yea and amen for the believer in Christ. The hope of the resurrection the life-changing power and promises of Christ, and yet we have failed to remember in the believing sense. The disciples viewed the reminder of Jesus' words and the report of the women as an empty, idle fairy tale. Centuries earlier, Moses seeking to impress upon the hearts and minds of God's people reminded them of the import of the word of God. And he said this, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. The angels at the tomb that day, in essence, were saying, Remember. Remember Jesus' words. Listen to him. Reflect upon them. Dwell on them, take them in, apply them to your heart and life. They are your life. That's what the ladies were reminded of by the angels. So remember today... This Lord's Day, as Barry mentioned, every single Lord's Day is a celebration and reminder of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So remember in the biblical and believing sense, Jesus' resurrection. Today, rest and rely upon His finished work on the cross alone for your salvation. Rest and rely upon the power He promises in His resurrection through the ministry of the Spirit to live wholeheartedly for Him. Remember the hope of the resurrection that it might captivate our hearts and our minds. Remember. You know, remembering is not only important for the words of Christ, but also for this sacrament that we're celebrating this morning. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread and He blessed it and He broke it. He took a cup The cup of the new covenant. And he said, do this in what? Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance in the biblical sense, in the believing sense. What does that mean? The Puritan John Flavel said that there are two types of remembering. There's speculative and there's affectionate. A speculative remembrance, Flavel wrote, is only to call to mind the history of such a person and his sufferings that Christ was once put to death in the flesh. We got that. We remember that. But an affectionate remembrance is when we so call Christ and his death to our minds that we feel the powerful impressions thereof upon our hearts. Our hearts are filled with a sense of wonder and of awe that this God would sacrifice His one and only Son on our behalf. Hearts filled with the love of God in Christ that begins to affect our minds, our emotions, and our wills. Hearts gripped by the grace of God in the gospel and the power of the resurrected Christ. They give us the impotence to live lives fully for his glory. It brings us back to the first catechism. And it gives us power and motive. What's our chief end? But to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, may God, by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, grant us such affectionate remembrance that by faith as we feed upon the Lamb of God, of God, our hearts will be moved with affection, our lives in action. For it's not only His word that is our life. He is our life. So remember Him. Remember with deep affection the person and work of Jesus as we gather around this table. Let's pray together. O oh, Father, grant us a holy remembrance that brings great honor and glory and praise to our Savior, great good to our own souls. We thank you, O oh Christ, that you were willing to die on the cross for our sins and to be buried and raised again on the third day. May that resurrection hope strengthen us, enable us to remember and live more fully for your glory in light of your great immeasurable love for us and your son, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.